Neighbor College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. Wednesday afternoon, December 8, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, studying the New Testament, and today, Archaeology and the Apocalypse for the Book of Revelation. Now I want to do what happened to that book by uh, Randy. Here. Uh, introduce you to a book or two before we go into detail here. William Ramsey, that we already noted in connection with the studies of Luke and Acts, wrote the definitive book on Revelation chapters 2 and 3. This is the chapter with the letters to the seven churches in it. I was at the um, National um, Church Conference once and was a young lady there as a student in Moody Bible Institute. And I got talking to her, and she said, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3 are a preview of the history of the church, and we are now in the Laodicean period. I said, how do you know this? Well, we just are. And uh, I said, does it say so in the Bible that these are intended as a preview uh, in, in a sequence like that, there's a Philadelphian period and a Sardis period and so on? And I talked to her and I said, um, Moody Bible Institute's got a good reputation, you know, but I said, where you taught at Moody in your course on the book of Revelation that there are three main types of interpretation of the book of Revelation held among people that believe in the Bible. The preterist view that many of these visions were fulfilled soon after it was written. The continuous historical, that this is, uh, con con yeah, let's say, uh, continuous and uh, coincidental with the centuries of church history. And the futurist, which holds that most of this is still future after the rapture of the church out of the world. No, they had been taught only the futurist view, and neither of the others had even so much as been mentioned. And I said, well, of course, I don't claim that all three of these are equally true. But you're not educated on the book of Revelation unless you know what the available possibilities are and what has been held concerning uh, the time of fulfillment and so forth, the structure of this book. Now that's typical of many fundamentalists who um, get one side of a thing only, have a very um, oh, highly opinionated knowledge. These seven churches can be well held to be not uh, in sequence, but that each of these is, let's say, a picture of some aspects of every church. And that uh, you take the churches of today, you can find churches that, to which the letter to the church in Philadelphia fits well, and others, certainly the letter to the church in Laodicea would uh, fit well to put it mildly. And uh, that uh, therefore these do not, you see, it doesn't say there that they represent historical periods. These were seven churches that were in existence at the time when the book was written. And John wrote these seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. This means, of course, not the continent of Asia, but the Roman province of Asia, which was only a fractional part of Asia Minor. Now, uh, uh, therefore, all seven of these were in existence at the time when the book was written. Now, it is guesswork to say that they are prophetic in the sense that um, there's one comes to an end and the next one starts like that. And uh, She said, we are now in the Laodicean era. 
that you are assuming, you see, from your standpoint in the grassroots of history that um, uh, the others have all gone past and this is the Laodicean era. Now, how do you know that if maybe God should set planets, there might be 500 years more before the Lord will return? I don't think there will be, but suppose it should happen. You can't actually say there wouldn't be. In that case, you would be mistaken. And people 300 years ago who said they were in the Laodicean era obviously were mistaken. Thank you. And therefore, there's an element of um, oh, uh, speculation about this kind of dealing with it. I was saying with uh, Mr. Beatty here before we started class, a basic principle in dealing with Bible prophecies that is often ignored by people that ought to know better is to confound the meaning with the fulfillment. As long as you are searching out the meaning, you're dealing with Scripture, the infallible and inspired Word of God, and if you handle this by tried and true and legitimate methods, you're on solid ground. Uh, Revelation 13, the beast, the wild beast, carry on, wild beast out of the sea. This uh, chapter, which is enough to scare you, it's 1984, uh, not long ago, this chapter is certainly predicts the rise of a world dictator who will persecute and all but destroy Christianity only to be himself destroyed at the Lord's second coming. Now, this is um, the meaning of it. And as long as we ferret this out, we, we're handing it right. But when somebody comes along and says, yes, the world dictator and uh, Genghis Khan or Napoleon Bonaparte, or Adolf Hitler, or Mussolini, or Castro, yes, some also said Franklin Delano Roosevelt, was a dictator. Now you say, how do you know anything about Franklin Delano Roosevelt from the Bible? You get this out of Time magazine. So their interpretation, now I don't mean to pick on Roosevelt, let's say some other character from history. Um, Mussolini, let's say, he was nominated for this. You get this out of Time Magazine. So it's the Bible plus Time Magazine. The Bible is the infallible word of God, but Time Magazine certainly isn't. And uh, therefore, there's an element of, um, a possible element of uh, complete misjudgment about the thing when you try to nail down the fulfillment. Now, it is possible, of course, to express a probability judgment about the fulfillment. And I think as the time of the Lord's coming draws near, it will become more obvious what the fulfillment will be. And spiritual Christians are not going to be taken as by a thief in the night to sleep to moral reality. On the other hand, we will not be able to say absolutely until the fulfillment takes place. What does it mean when it says the sign of the Son of Man in heaven? Matthew 24. What does this mean? You can guess what it means, and I can guess what it means, but nobody knows what it means, and they won't until the time comes, and then people will know, Christian people will. So this is a, a basic issue in interpretation of the Bible. You distinguish prophecy, especially, the meaning from the fulfillment. And in studying the meaning, you are on substantial solid ground when you start to speculate about the fulfillment and attempt to pinpoint that, you overlook unconsciously the fact that you yourself are at a certain point in the historical process. There may be times ahead, and maybe this wild beast of Revelation chapter 13 uh, is uh, still in the future. I kind of think he is. But uh, 
people forget this. And so they say, well, it was some of the wicked popes, or it was Napoleon, or, or some of these other things. Still question. Yeah, I uh, base this on, uh, can't prove it, it's uh, only my opinion, but um, the increase of wickedness, which is getting worse and worse apparently, along with an increase of moral good among spiritual Christians, the increase of world population, which is reaching a point beyond which this place will be unlivable, a um, number of things like this, but this is only a probability judgment on my part. Now, Jesus said, in an hour when you think not, son of man cometh. A man is recorded to rest three friends who are standing in a group. Do you think the Lord's coming will happen soon? And the first said, I think not. And the second said, I think not. And the third said, I think not. And this guy opened his Bible up. In an hour when you think not, the son of man cometh. Now, the truth is the Bible does not tell us the time of the end of the world or the end of this age of the world or the second coming of Christ. This has not been revealed. There are signs given. One of these is the preaching of the gospel to all nations and a number of others, Matthew chapter 24. <coughs> signs given which will indicate the approach of this. One of these is the great increase of wickedness. But the, the actual time, the day and hour, which you could write on the blackboard with a piece of chalk if you knew what it was, has not been revealed. And therefore, anybody, any religious teacher, uh, whether orthodox or cultic, that claims to know and figure out the time of the Lord's second coming is suspect. About the year 1000 A.D., there was a widespread belief through the Christian world of that day that um, the world would have been um, 7,000 years, and it was held there had been 6,000 uh, in the Old Testament period, following the Septuagint chronology, and 1,000 from the time of Christ to the year 1000 A.D. in the Middle Ages of the Christian era, which made 7,000, and that uh, at that point the Lord would return at uh, New Year's Eve to the year 1000. And the many people are said to have sold their property, although what they intended to do with the money is beyond me, and gotten their white robes and so forth, so they're waiting for the second coming as on New Year's Day of the year 1001. But it didn't happen. And the date setters never learn anything. There's a little book uh, published by Concordia uh, Publishing House in very Synod Lutheran Church, and this is a chapter in there on the date setters at work. These people have set the date and revived it time and again. William Miller, this is not on the Blakeless book, but we got time to talk about this a little. William Miller, the real founder of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, none of you are SDAs, are you? All right, I didn't think you were. Uh, he was a Presbyterian, uh, I believe, preacher about 1838 and predicted that the second coming of Christ would happen in 1840. And uh, got a big following of people. He had, uh, tell you, if he had a computer, he could have really gone to town, but uh, he had it worked out mathematically from various data in the Bible. And uh, 1840 came and it didn't happen. So he announced he'd made a mistake in his calculations and he 
really calculated, second thoughts on the second coming. And uh, announced another date, and again it didn't happen. After this, William Miller uh, had the Christian grace to announce publicly that he was mistaken, and that he would no more indulge in date setting. But a woman, Mrs. Uh, Ellen G. White, one of his followers and disciples, announced that uh, Miller was correct the first time. Only the second coming didn't take place on this earth, it took place in heaven. Now this is real handy because you can't check it up very well. <laughs> if you ask me, the Bible predicts the second coming of Christ on this earth. But they worked this out and Mrs. White became a sort of a prophetess and an interpreter of prophecy and a leading um, scholar of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And for a long time, they regarded her writings as almost, if not quite, on a par with inspired scripture. <coughs> this was the skeleton in the closet of the SBA church. They're trying to get away from this a little bit today. But uh, this, uh, she also claimed to have had a vision in which she saw the Ten Commandments on a tablet or monument with a circle of light around the Fourth Commandment about the Sabbath. Seventh-day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. She interpreted this to mean the seventh day of the week. And she had seen a circle of light about this. So um, this gave the idea of the Saturday Sabbath, which is typical of the SDA denomination. Now you have to hand it to them for their um, conscientious convictions. There's nothing more inconvenient than to keep the Sabbath on Saturday in a country where most people don't keep it any day of the week. <laughs> And uh, this, was, uh, this was very hard to do, and they're remarkably faithful in doing it. But um, this is not really the meaning of that. Seven, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. The seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. The seventh day out of seven in regular sequence says nothing about what day of the week it is, and the idea that this could be traced back to the creation and, and get the exact day of the week is... Uh, for my money, completely untrue. Now then, Mrs. White um, got out extensive works on prophecy, all of which are highly biased by Seventh-day Adventist theology. One of their peculiar beliefs, and this is much more damaging than the one about the Seventh-day Sabbath, is their belief about the atonement. They take the type of the scapegoat in Leviticus, you recall Leviticus 16, I believe, there were two goats, and um, Aaron's hand was to be laid on the head of both of them, and the one was to be uh, the sins of the people of Israel symbolically transferred to this goat, and then uh, one of them was to be killed and its bloodshed, and the other one led off to the edge of the camp to the wilderness and turned loose. Orthodox theology has always held that both of these prefigured Christ that the one that was killed prefigured Christ as crucified, and the one led out to the edge of the camp and turned loose prefigured Christ as buried, as if he took our sins on himself and carried them away, underground, let's say, when he was buried in a tomb. And that both of them prefigured Christ. But Mrs. White said, no, the first one represents Christ, and the second goat represents Satan. And in the end, at the uh, wind-up of this world, or before the next great age, or the millennium begins, 
the sins of the world will all be laid on Satan because he is responsible. Who was it that talked Adam and Eve into committing sin? So Satan is responsible. Now, God didn't think so. He blamed Adam and Eve for it. That's what said in Genesis chapter 3, I believe. But Mrs. White said, if Satan is responsible, the sins of the world will be laid on Satan. And uh, then the wicked, who are not repentant and who are not Christians, will finally be annihilated. They do not believe in um, hell, not really. And the wicked will cease to exist as if they had never been. Their sins being born by Satan, who, uh, poor devil, will not be annihilated. But uh, the wicked will be annihilated. And uh, this, you see, detracts from the efficacy and unique character of the atonement of Christ. Who is our Savior? After all, Christ is Satan. Christ bore our sins. And he alone bore our sins. And this uh, leads to an error on this on this subject. Now, uh, we had an accreditation about, not this last one of the college, but ten years before that. And the Middle States Association had a team here, and uh, since this was a religious college, they put a, not only a Catholic priest, but a Protestant pastor on the um, team that came here. And the Protestant pastor was a minister of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Royal boy. And I interviewed him. And he went to the library and found we were awfully low on SBA literature. And soon after the team had left Peter Falls, it began coming in, and it's been coming in ever since, free. We're getting the stuff from this um, uh, Seventh-day Adventist publishing house, so we've got a good uh, collection of it down there now. But they make the mistake that um, I was mentioning of confusing the meaning with the fulfillment. And this has led lots of people astray, and if you're ever uh, contacted by them and uh, they attempt to work on you, just remember, the error about the Sabbath is the least of their errors. This is comparatively harmless. It's this error about the atonement and about soul sleep, that the dead are unconscious and know nothing until the resurrection. That is the real, uh, let's say, problem about SCA theology. Have you ever met up with them, Mr. Brown? Did you convince them? They convinced you. Oh, you. Okay. Now then, with regard to the book of Revelation, here are these letters to the seven churches. Christ writes to the seven churches of Asia. John, the apostle, was a prisoner on the island of Patmos. This is a lonely rock, I suppose, and here's we got to it is Alcatraz off the California coast. A lonely and relatively barren rock in the Mediterranean. It was used as a prison by the Roman authorities. Anybody who wanted to really get out of circulation, Patmos was the place. So the island of Patmos for the testimony of Jesus, that is because of his faith in and work for Jesus Christ. And there are the visions which form our book of Revelation came to him. Now the time here is um, toward the end of the first century. Persecution of Christianity, serious persecution by the Roman government was just beginning. Realizing the whole period covered by the book of Acts, it was the Jews who persecuted Christianity and the Romans who protected it. Paul got protected repeatedly by his Roman citizenship, and it was the Jews that were 
during the damage. Now, Jerusalem was destroyed AD 70. This knocked uh, the Jews completely out of the picture. They, after they had no power to do anything to anybody, all scattered abroad. And Jerusalem destroyed, and the Romans found out by that Christianity is not, as we had previously supposed, a mere sect or denomination of the Jewish faith, but it is something in itself, and it claims to be the only true religion and to be universal. So here is a rival to the claims of Caesar, Lord Caesar or Lord Jesus. You can't have two universal kingdoms like this. They didn't think you could. And so the Romans began to persecute Christianity. This is in head-on collision course with Roman emperor worship. The whole uh, idolatrous deification of the state, which we know in modern times from phenomena like uh, Adolf Hitler in Nazi Germany and uh, Japan and it tells you this is state worship. When you strip the trappings off a little, it's the deification of the state as uh, claiming people's absolute devotion and highest loyalty, which is therefore idolatry. The honor that belongs only to God is demanded by the state. And this is what the Roman government demanded. And this is what real Christians would render. So they suffered persecution, and they were thrown to the lions and tortured and killed. And, uh, John wrote the book of Revelation just as the church was going into this. And this was certainly intended to steady the faith of the early Christians as they went into this awful experience. What would you do if it was a choice between denying that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and being thrown of the lion? What would you do? I don't know what I would do. I hope I'd have grace to be a martyr, but, you know, you wonder. It said the martyrs get special grace. It is a man who's dying and said to his neighbor, he's dying. neighbor said, you can't be. You haven't got the dying grace yet. But, but anyway, uh, this pictures the intensity and bitterness and cruelty and injustice and wickedness of the Roman persecution of Christianity and all its terror and predicts an end to it and a victory over it which will result in eternal victory and triumph for the true people of God. Now, I do not believe in the preterist interpretation, that is, that everything in Revelation was fulfilled a few years after it was written, but certainly it had many fulfillments during that time, but not exhaustively. It can have further fulfillment yet in the future. And it is possible that the beast of Revelation 13 was uh, Nero or or some other of the Roman emperors, and Gaius, maybe, he was the worst of them for persecuting Christians. And yet, he still was only a type, and yet there may be a worse one coming later, Mr. Brown. The writer of the Revelation have the idea that what he's writing about is heaven, he is the Lord, when really has the knowledge of the Lord. He could, uh, yeah, he could be unaware of this. He wrote something the Holy Spirit inspired him to write. Now, it is a recognized sense that prophecy can have a multiple fulfillment. The great flood in Noah's day was a prototype or a sample of God's great judgment at the end of the world. So stated to be in the first epistle of Peter. It's a sample of God's judgment on sin, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah was, the double destruction by the Babylonians later by the Romans of Jerusalem was. All of these show uh, God's righteous judgment on human unbelief, sin, and wickedness, but 
this does not preclude the fact it could happen again on an even larger scale, which would still be a true fulfillment. And you see, the meaning doesn't change. God judges human wickedness. But the fulfillment can be multiple. Uh, I've illustrated this sometimes in classes and church groups. I have a projector screen here and get a slide projector and get it um, down here where Mr. Beggy is sitting and saw it on the screen and you have a small but bright picture of some, from one particular spot. Then you move the uh, projector back to where Mr. Brown is sitting and you have the same picture but not quite so bright but larger. And you move it clear to the rear of the room and maybe the picture will be bigger than the screen. So it up onto the wall. But still it's the same picture. So you could have a fulfillment in the, of, of Christ's prophecies in Matthew 24 at the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 68 to 70, again at certain other times in world history, but especially at Christ and just before Christ's second coming. And this, um, this would be the ultimate fulfillment of it that would exhaust the meaning of it, that uh, could not be fulfilled again after this. Another illustration, you have a nice smooth uh, surface pond of water, and you throw a stone in, and you have concentric ripples. One stone will say that's the meaning of the prophecy, but the ripples are multiple. And they reach out and out and out, the nearest ripple is right where you threw the stone in. But then a little further out, there's another circle. And then out further, there's another one. And it goes out to the edge of the pond. And this would illustrate the fact that a particular section of scripture, now I'm not saying all prophecies have multiple fulfillments, because probably they don't, but certainly they don't, but some do. And uh, the meaning would always be the same. You cannot have a prophecy with two different meanings that are properly different from each other. But the fulfillment can be different. The same thing is true of something like the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ox or his ass. That part of today. Farm animals. Now, the part that applies to this is, Thou shalt not covet, if you want to translate it into modern terms to make it truly relevant. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's Volkswagen station wagon or his Sandra tractor. And there is coveting that is forbidden there in terms of their life situation at that time, but it's applicable to us. And the meaning is the same, but the application expands with the changing of the time. Now then, this is written then, let's say, to comfort and encourage and steady the church as they went into this terrible period of persecution. And this does not exhaust the fulfillment. The Roman persecution came to an end with the conversion of Constantine, and let me tell you, he was a mighty dubious Christian, baptized just before he died. I God, if he uh, would be chosen to teach Bible in Geneva. But uh, at any rate, uh, he was enough of a Christian, at least a nominal Christian, to um, put a stop to religious persecution. A.D. 312 was edict of by Constantine. There was a little flurry of it later under Julian the Apostate, but that was just a flesh and a pen was soon over with. So that stopped persecution. The church had outlived it. The Roman Empire got into, um, but they were knocked down and dragged out conflict with Jesus Christ and Christianity won in the Roman Empire law. Now there's some other time. Probably there have been more martyrs in our own day in uh, Soviet Russia and Communist China and other countries than there were in the entire period of the Roman Empire. But we don't have the data except 
fragmentary data to prove this. So, let's say the book of Revelation teaches not only that the church will be cruelly persecuted, and this happened first at the hands of imperial Rome, but also that whenever the church is persecuted, God's people can take comfort from the fact that God is on the throne. He is the one that decides the ultimate outcomes of things. And the ultimate outcome for Christians eventually is bound to be good. Even if you get killed, the outcome is going to be good. Jesus said that some of you are put to death. Be of good cheer. They want the hair of your head perish. How can you be put to death and not a hair of your head perish? Well, death is not what the world thinks it is for a Christian. If Western Pennsylvania and this world-famous Tri-State area gets the burn to a crisp tomorrow by a hydrogen bomb, and don't you worry, if you do it in seconds, the whole Tri-State area could be burnt to a crisp in, in, in seconds or minutes. This, if you are in Christ, this could do you nothing but good. Nothing but good. But to the world, this would be the ultimate evil, you see. The worst of all possible things to be avoided. Now, the letters to the seven churches, I take it, were applicable in the first place to those particular churches. John looked to the angel of the church at Ephesus. How do you write a letter to an angel? Mr. Wilson, how do you write a letter to an angel? <laughs> well, uh, Angelos in Greek. Who's this? Mr. Brown, who's in the Greek? Who's in the Greek? All right. Messenger, sure. Angelos means messenger, and this is from which we get the word angel. Uh, it is commonly believed that the angels of each of these churches were the pastor and minister of the church. So you don't have to, you don't just write to the church of Ephesus, it's got maybe a hundred members or more, right? You have to send it to somebody in particular, to the angel or messenger, God's messenger, to the church of Ephesus. Another idea is that this is a personification, sort of the spirit of the church, a kind of a personification of the church, but the other idea is it's more plausible. And so John wrote these in his uh, present conditions on the line of Patmos and sent them and they were received. And these churches are not equally treated. Philadelphia gets almost nothing but praise. And Laodicea almost nothing but blame. And that is a mixture of the two. Now then, when people have wondered about the meaning of these, I will say these are applicable in some degree to every church at every time. All seven of them are. You mean a church that's... Uh, written somebody in or something in that uh, doesn't put something in every one of these letters. On the other hand, one may be much more applicable than another at a certain period of year to a certain group or church or body of people. And this is uh, typical of the whole Christian world one of the time when Christ will come again. Very possibly the letter to the church at Laodicea will be preeminently applicable to uh, the last days before the Lord returns. However, we are not allowed to say when that will be, you see. And uh, so we can study these for what we can get out of it. Now, people look through these and try to make something of them. And so William Ramsey came along. And the William Ramsey that we must have been with the Book of Acts and the Epistles and so forth. He cracked over these places and wrote this uh, book here. This has 450 pages in it. It's been reprinted and reprinted. This letters uh, to seven churches that all previous studies of Revelation 2 and 3 in the shade. And uh, nobody is competent to deal uh, 
in a scholarly way with Revelation 2 and 3 that hadn't read uh, either this or a book that is based on that second family. And he showed how, in each case, the geography and history of the city is tied into the statements and terms of the letter. And this brought out the wealth of meaning. Uh, one place there it says to buy ice gas. This city was famous for the manufacture of an eye medicine. used for physical, the sore eyes. But these people needed eye gas for their spiritual being. Clearly as that. But by being in or something like this, to enable them to see Christ and his truth with a spiritual insight and belief. The letter to the church of Philadelphia says, Him that overcometh, will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And then he showed, after researching the whole place, he really tasted uh, He showed that Philadelphia was repeatedly subjected to earthquakes. And over and over again, there would come earthquake tremors, and everybody would dash out of town to get away from the potential refuge in Rome. Get out and open field somewhere if they're seeing an earthquake. I went to one once in China. It didn't kill anybody. It, it, uh, I tell you, it scared plenty of people, though. The earth rumbled for 20 seconds. Shook. It a deep rumble. And it was about 10 seconds, and then it blew again. We read about it in the paper after experiencing it. It, it wasn't a damaging earthquake, but uh, sure it registered on the fashion graph. Now, Philadelphia was subject to earthquakes, and the people would go out to test promises. Those who are faithful to him, in spite of everything, he shall go no more out. He will get a country and a city and a habitation and a state of existence where he won't have to be on the run. You see, this is security. He won't have to be uh, constantly uh, in a state of acquisition. You see, are you going to have another earthquake? Today or tonight, you could never tell. Earthquakes don't, um, they're unpredictable. The U.S. Weather Bureau predicts the weather, and this was to be a nice, clear, sunny day today, you know. But, <laughs> clearing at least, I don't see it happening yet. But, uh, earthquakes are unpredictable. Now, I will make them a pillar in the temple of my God. These Greek columns are pillars. Strange to say, even great homes, 30 feet high or more, 50 feet high, often remained standing instead of earthquake shocks when ordinary walls and buildings would topple, and the pillars would remain standing. They were so perfectly balanced and down at bedrock that the ordinary earthquake shocks didn't topple them. This is seen at uh, many places in the Middle East and the ancient world. So, him that overcometh, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, as the Greek pillar withstood the earthquake shocks. So the faithful Christian will withstand the assaults of Satan and of the world and will survive these and outlast them and gain the victory in the end. Now here's where the, uh, the geography and history of the city goes right on the meaning of the epistle you see. Another one is the epistle to the church at Ephesus. And in this case, um, it speaks of repenting and doing the first works or else I will come and take your candlestick away, the first works. And then we shall, Ephesus had been a seaport. And then the river that flows out there got more and more mud, and the harbor got all filled up with mud, and ships shouldn't come in. 
and uh, Ephesus was in danger of dying as a city because the harbor on which the economic life was dependent was showing up as silk and ships couldn't get in until it just and open steps. And the Roman government came in and had a big engineering program that grudged that. And that was the first work. Later they had a second program to grudge that out, and that was the second work. But the first works were the most important. And when he ties that in with the letter to the church at Ephesus, repent and do the first works. In other words, uh, get back to your original faithfulness and love and devotion to Christ from the present lukewarm, backslidden, and compromised position. Repent and do the first works or else. And the history of the city is the dredging the river becomes then a uh, sort of a parable of our keeping the channel here between ourselves and God, which requires praying and using the means of grace and witnessing for Christ and all these things. So this is shed light on nothing. And this is true of everyone. My one who sits off of his photographs of most of these places and um, never sees. He brings back to his case. This is Saturday. There's two pillars standing after everything else has been touched. The way it is today. The one who raised books. I guess that was there, right? And then, so this has put an amazing amount of light on me. Now I'm going to have a little bit of time left, not very much, but uh, I'd rather take a time and get something out of this and get very sure of just the things I've done. Um, Discovering that Pompeii, a bearing on the proper interpretation of the number 666, this is the name in the book, and uh, one of the chapters here, Archaeology and the Apocalypse,